Hi everyone, this is Eugene. I'm introducing an episode that I recorded over a year ago now, so unfortunately it took a while to get to the editing process for this one, but um, I recorded this while I was working on an academic paper in law school um, on the constitutional right to family unity, and this is one of the coolest projects that I've been able to do because I got to finally just sit down and read a lot about the issue, and I really only kind of scratched the surface, but Um, I learned a lot about the history of family separation and how it's been used as a tool of subordination for um, all kinds of racial groups throughout U.S. history. And um, among my research during that time, I came across an article about slavery and um, how the 13th Amendment to the Constitution could be used as a challenge to family separation. And thankfully, um, I reached out to Professor Mechu, who is the guest for this episode, and he graciously took the time to speak with me. So, it was a real privilege to have him as a guest on this podcast. And as things have come full circle, my paper is now out, so you can read it if you are a you know immigration lawyer or law student. Um, and if you are not interested in law at all, which um, can make sense, we tried to make this episode as accessible as possible for everybody. So um, in either case, I hope that you enjoy it. Welcome back to the Divided Families podcast. This is the first episode I'm recording in 2022. Might not be the first that comes out um, in this batch, I guess. But I think for those of you who've listened to my recap that I did with Paul at the end of 2021, uh, I mentioned that I'd been doing some independent research. I actually mentioned this article that I had just read about um, the use of the 13th Amendment in advocating against the separation of families at the U.S.-Mexico border. And That might have sounded very, very esoteric and random at the time, Um, but I just happened to finally have the opportunity to speak with the professor who wrote this article, and that article was called Help Me to Find My Children, A 13th Amendment Challenge to Family Separation, and was published in the Stanford Journal of Civil Rights and Civil Liberties. And the article is written by a professor at Seton Hall Law, Professor Enjo Mechu, who I'm so grateful is here to speak with me about the article and let me nerd out (laughs) um, about yeah these kinds of like intersectional issues so uh thank you so much for taking the time so yeah so thank you so much uh you and jane for for having me i i really appreciate uh this invitation and and uh the opportunity to talk more about this project uh, which to me is, is a project that was intended uh more for a, a generalist audience and and so i'm glad to have this this platform to to say a little bit more about it um in terms of how i i i came about to to write the project i you know previously before before going into academia, I, I worked at the Southern Poverty Law Center where I was involved in, in children's rights work. Obviously, family separation is an issue that that is closely aligned with uh, children's rights issues. And in, in my personal background, uh, it, it's a project that is rooted in, in solidarity. Um, and what I mean by that is I, I came to this country as a migrant uh, and as a child uh, from West Africa uh, in Cameroon, which is, uh, if if you'll excuse my language, if I could 
uh, uh, say the word shithole, uh, to, to quote uh, our former president, uh, it, it's one of those the so-called shithole countries that uh, uh, former President Trump uh, railed against in talking about uh, where he did or did not want immigrants uh, migrating from. And so for me, it was really a, an understanding that this is a shared experience to some degree. Um, and, and to use my platform as a law professor who uh, thinks about scholarship as a tool for advocacy, it was something that I felt important to amplify um, thinking about it in this way that had been uh, underexplored before uh, or not explored um, in any great depth. So uh, I'm really looking forward to, to this conversation. You did a fantastic job of getting to my first question, which was, which was usually we ask our guests kind of like, how did you get interested in the issue? And um, you've already kind of done a great job of explaining that. I guess I also wanted to foreground exactly what you also mentioned, which was, uh, this is a law student speaking with a law professor. I mean, I wanted to say, I hope that we don't get too in the weeds technical. And I think that that's exactly what um, you were hoping to get out of this conversation. So, I mean, I guess on that front, I was wondering if you could just explain to listeners, like, what is the 13th Amendment? I mean, people usually know, like, the first, second that's about it. Right. So, you know, people generally uh, think about, you know, the Bill of Rights, you know, the first 10 uh, amendments. The 13th Amendment is um, the first amendment in what is known as uh, the Reconstruction Period. Uh, And that is the period that follows the the Civil War, uh, which ended in 1865. The 13th was ratified in 1865, and uh, it was intended to formally put an end to slavery, uh, eradicate slavery and and involuntary servitude. And within that amendment, Congress was also authorized to pass legislation to enforce uh, what the mandates of the 13th Amendment uh, were, uh, which later was interpreted to include uh, not just literal slavery, uh, but what are known as the badges and incidents of slavery. And there, there's ongoing scholarly dialogue about uh, what exactly is meant by the term, by the concept badges and incidents of slavery. Uh, but broadly, we might say that uh, when we think about the badges and incidents of slavery, we're not only literally thinking about um, you know, forced labor or, or being in bondage, we're thinking about other features that were integral to the slave system. So we might think plausibly that violence against women was a badge of, of an incident of slavery, uh, racially motivated violence, uh, breaking up of families. Uh, those, these are core features that made the slave system run. Um, and so at a very high level, that is what the 13th Amendment was intended to establish when the Radical Reconstruction Congress uh, passed it at, in 1865. Um, and some of the modern interpretations have not been as ambitious as what Congress had hoped. But, but that is the potential that the 13th offers, uh, in addition to having put an end to literal slavery. Mm-hmm. And to clarify, so was the original formulation, and I guess I'm just speaking from, let's say, just a lay person asking this question, like, would that have made all incidents or badges of slavery just unconstitutional on its face? Or were there like extra steps required to like figure out which one is actually an incident, et cetera. Right. So that's a great question. You know, it's, so it's essentially, and not to get to uh, legalese here, whether, yeah. whether it's, uh, you know, self-executing, meaning that it, because something uh, is reminiscent of a, a fixture of slavery, does that in itself uh, make it illegal? And that's where uh, the, the second uh, provision of the 13th Amendment comes in, where, you know, 
Congress has the power to pass legislation to abolish these systems that reflect some of the practices that sustained slavery. So to give an example of a an, a, a bill that was passed uh, under Congress's power uh, that flows from the 13th, the Violence Against Women Act is informed by Congress's power under the 13th Amendment. Um, so that speaks to this idea that um, just because it is a badge or incident of slavery, um, does not mean that in it itself illegal. It means that Congress has the authority to pass legislation to address these issues that are sort of symptomatic of the slave system, uh, to, to put it uh, broadly and very generally. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to, yeah, this might be my last little bit on this. And like, I don't want to go too in the weeds here, but I guess, does Congress have a responsibility to do these things as a follow-up? I and mean, we don't have to get too into that. <laughs> Just a surface level explanation would be fine. Right. So, you know, you know, we, we might say that um, uh, Congress has the responsibility to, to do these things in, in the very general, general way that Congress has a responsibility to make sure that um, it is responding to the pressing needs of, of its constituents. Um, but I think this issue goes a bit a step further, uh, and I allude to this in my paper, because the judicial system has proven to be uh, not particularly receptible to claims that flow under the 13th Amendment. And so when you're thinking about challenging anything uh, by arguing that it violates the 13th Amendment, the usual response is that if it's not slavery, literal slavery, if it's not involuntary servitude, there's nothing to talk about. And so from that perspective, it, it, it pretty much uh, sets up Congress as, as perhaps one of the only viable means of achieving any meaningful reform on these issues. And also the added benefit of, of Congress uh, pursuing action here is that con- anything Congress does has a stronger uh, expressive function than you know ju- judiciary, and part of the reason is because you know Congress people are elected by the people as opposed to federal judges that is that are appointed by presidents, and so both in terms of the practical landfill that is laid out in addressing these issues, and also the impact that would flow, uh, it makes sense that Congress would be the body to step in and address these issues. Yeah, I'm I'm really glad I asked that question because um, I think it really kind of brings out the fact that I guess in like modern conversation and discourse, like we like to kind of, you know, valorize like rights and like vindicating rights in court, et cetera. And we kind of forget that Congress is another yeah vehicle for like vindicating those rights. But um, yeah, I'm not going to, I'm not going to open that <laughs> rabbit hole. Uh, I think uh, a more, I guess, more general question that I think might be useful for listeners might be, this is also kind of maybe a very important part of your article. And I think that you deal with this well, which is can you tell us more about the relationship between invoking something like slavery, uh, which is such a huge topic in American history and culture, and comparing that to another big topic? But, you know, like some people like to argue about which one is, quote unquote, worse, et cetera. Um, and so and I think you're very conscious about that. So I was wondering if you could kind of talk about. Um, oh, and I guess the last part to add to that question is just because it might be helpful for us as a podcast, because we literally 
put these stories next to each other all the time um and yeah i'm not telling i'm not saying that you should tell us how we should uh, conceive of our role but um i think that that would be helpful for yeah no that that, that's a great question and i think um as you said it was one of the things that i was particularly sensitive to um in in trying to you know undertake this comparative analysis i think we've gotten better at it as a society Um, but anytime slavery is raised in conversation it feels like there is a a shadow that hangs over the conversation. Um, and when you analogize anything to slavery, it, it's thought to be completely off the wall and, and scandalous. And I think this baggage is attached to conversations around slavery because of a misunderstanding of what the slave system was, was actually about. Um, when you bring up slavery, the prevailing perception is that um, the picture that comes to mind is of, you know, Africans in bondage being forced to, to labor on the cotton fields. And that's where it ends. Um, very rarely do you see uh, engagement with the topic of slavery that appreciates that uh, the slave system was far more expansive in its operation than what I just described. And so when you say to someone that this or that is similar to slavery in some respect, uh, the thought that comes to mind is, well, w- wait a minute, you know, this or that group isn't in bondage this or that group is enforced mm-hmm. into labor. And so probably the most significant drawback uh, to this comparative analysis is that this myopic view of slavery as limited to, to these set conditions uh, is so deeply entrenched in popular understanding that, that you risk losing people's interest at the mere suggestion that you know, family separation is like slavery. And so, you know, that is one challenge in, in, in navigating these types of discussions. But a benefit to, to trying to engage in, in this type of analysis is um, if you are able to educate people about the fundamental aspects of the institutions of slavery um, and, and get them to appreciate that it goes beyond, you know, forced labor and, 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 and people being exploited uh, f- for their labor um, and being in bondage, and allow them to see that the, the route extends far broader broader in, in different directions, it can be a really powerful tool for allyship um, because I think most people would agree, and this is going to be a, 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 a scandalous statement, most people would agree that the slave system was bad. And so um, the, the reason the 13th is particularly good in this area is because it speaks to the ugliness of family separation in the language of basic human rights. And so if you can get people to understand that this is what slavery really was, this is what we're seeing at the U.S.-Mexico border, this is similar to the slave system in this way, because people generally understand that the slavery was a bad thing, uh, it's a really powerful tool to get people who might otherwise view this as an issue that is either irrelevant or does not elevate to the level of, of, of importance that, that it deserves. And so those are sort of what I see to be the benefits of this comparative analysis and some of the drawbacks to analogizing this to uh, the slave system. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, I think that for the rest of this conversation, we're just going to have to disentangle or not disentangle, but kind of figure out the relationship between or the role of slavery or family separation in slavery. I'm getting all my words mixed up there. Um, and I think for me, at least, I, mean, I think I'm just going to read part of uh, a passage that you've quoted in your article, just because I thought that this was a very illustrative way to kind of demonstrate the place of family separation in slavery and then after i read it i would be interested to hear more of your thoughts and explanation on like how like what is the place of family separation in slavery that's not as commonly understood i mean 
as a sidebar we did talk about it in a couple of previous podcast episodes with other guests but um for those who might not have listened to those so uh yeah this was just the passage where you talk about thomas h jones a former slave and he told horror stories of his experience um and he says i was very much afraid and began to cry holding on to my mother's clothes and begging her to protect me and not let the man take me away jones recalled Mother wept bitterly and in the midst of her loud sobbings cried out in broken words, I can't save you, Tommy. Master has sold you. You must go. And I, I mean, the reason that I want to read that is just because I can't, this is a podcast, I can't show any pictures or any, uh, but I think that those words, it's a very visceral <laughs> reaction producing kind of uh, image there. So I was wondering, yeah, with that as kind of the foreground, I was wondering if you could kind of explain the role of family separation in slavery as yeah, a system, I guess. So, so you know, that is a passage that that particularly uh, stood out to me um, as I was writing this paper and, and, and doing uh, the research. There's a great book by Professor Heather Andrea Williams, who mm-hmm. teaches at the University of Pennsylvania, I believe. Um, and, and the name of the book is called Help Me to Find My People. Um, the title of my paper, Help Me to Find My Children, is a riff off of the uh, her book title. And it, it's a thorough it's as thorough as it is heartbreaking in its description of, of how families were, were bought and sold in slavery. Um, and, and exactly the passage that you read, I think, captures this um, sort of uh, really dark and, and stark aspect of the slave system, um, which was really fundamental to everything that maintained the institution. Uh, it was a tool that masters used, perhaps, you know, first and foremost, to, to, to shore up their profits from the labor that they had stolen. Um, if you needed a farmhand or you needed someone uh, in the house because your labor supply was, was aging or had been uh, working to a brink of exhaustion, you knew that you could go to the auction block and buy a literal human being uh, whose labor you could exploit to do exactly what it is that you needed. It it was popular to buy women of child rearing age for, for, you know, for the very reason that they could reproduce. And and, and obviously the children of people who were enslaved, they themselves became slaves. And, you know, you might ask, well, if you're buying uh, people, uh, it doesn't, necessarily mean that families will be separated. You might imagine a scenario where, you know, someone would buy an entire family and sell it to another uh, uh, mm-hmm. uh, enslaver and that family would, would still be intact. But the problem, um, one of the many problems is that um, the law's general preference in the slave trade was to buy and sell individual family members, which all but ensured that families were were, bro- were broken up in this very methodical way. And in addition to, as I mentioned, it being a tool to, to sort of um, keep the profits steady, uh, it was also a tool that was used to punish. Uh, it, it, was a, it was a tool that was used to keep enslaved people from running away. The threat of being sold away mm-hmm. to a distant land uh, from one's family w- was always present. And, and in some respects, um, even at the time, it was recognized that being sold away from your family was a fate that was uh, perhaps beyond you know, racialized violence or forced labor. That was the most stark element of the slave system. And it was meant in many cases, to, to replicate literal death. And so if we think about it from that perspective, um, it's really something that operated uh, at a systemic level in terms of making sure that you had these people who had been subjugated on the basis of their race 
had them in line because they knew that at any point they could be sold away from their loved ones. And, and I might even personally argue that that is a faith that perhaps is, is worse than death because it, to, to some mm-hmm. degree, you know, when you die, of course, you know, not to get to, to sort of spiritual or philosophical, um, the knowledge that you are away from your loved ones is, is not, you know, present. You are alone in the sense that you're physically removed from them, from them. But when you're sold away, there is the thought that you could, in theory, be together. But the, the pain of being apart and alone to some was a fate that was beyond death. And so that is something that loomed over um, those who were enslaved, um, and it helped to really sustain the institution and, and keep it um, running for as long as it did. Yeah, I think that that has been sh- like when you talk about how being separated from your family is a fate worse than death. I mean, I've just been obviously as I've been writing this paper, I've been reading a lot of accounts of you know parent like mothers who are unable to eat because their child they don't know where their child is or what's happening. And I guess, I mean, we're a little ahead of schedule. So I was wondering if you had any, uh, I had an extra question, which was, I was wondering if you had thoughts on the different conceptions of families in different cultures. And do you think that might play a role at all? I know you said that in the beginning, you said you're from uh, Cameroon. Um, I don't know anything about the place of family in Cameroonian culture. I don't know if that's the right word, but um, yeah. Did you have any thoughts on that? That's obviously a little bit more of a... Right. No, so it, it, it is, um, it's an important aspect of these conversations about what it means to the, the sanctity of a family. Uh, it's important to appreciating the harms that arise when mm-hmm. you break up families, right? And, and, you know, of course, I would imagine that across all cultures, right, and a family is important. But in, in the um, African tradition, uh, a family uh, occupies a, a, a unique space in the sense that, you know, one's family is not uh, necessarily just, you know, biological in the sense that, you know, my family is my mother or my brother or my dad and or sister. Uh, but your family really is your your, your community. Um, mm-hmm. And everything is, is communal uh, in a sense that, you know, there is a shared experience that, that permeates everything that one is doing. And so when you have these systems that are rooted in the tradition of sharing and engaging with one another, contrast a little bit with what um, the, the prevailing conception of, of, of family in the United States is um, not this broader sense of, of community, but but the sort of more nuclear family style. Mm-hmm. And, and so the impact of family separation is, is particularly prominent because it's not it's affecting a, a far wider web of individuals because the connections are linked in, in, in such expansive ways. Mm. And, and so that is, I think, an aspect that when we are thinking about how family separation impacted people who were formerly enslaved and also how it transpired in terms of re- the reunification process, it's important to be mindful of what the institution of family looks like within that context. And, and it's not traditionally what we think about family in the United States in terms of, you know, 21st century com- contemporary understandings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely think about that a lot in terms of, I guess, with like East Asian cultures too. What you've said is uh, of a much more serious nature, I guess, but I guess just to give a really like 
not serious example um in the u.s like if you're living with your family as when you're like 30 years old or like late 20s it's considered a little weird like you're supposed to get out of the house and just leave um whereas in at least in korea like you know people stay with their uh, partially because there's an economic issue there in terms of like housing is expensive but um, i mean like staying with your family you know until you get married basically which could be in your 30s maybe um is not considered weird or a sign of like weakness or anything at all whereas here it's a little bit like oh i have to live with my family like <laughs> right no i i i completely uh, understand and and even thinking about from from a standpoint of as as you know parents begin to age right you know what mm-hmm. the responsibilities in that looks like is it you know having that parent go to a, a you know a, a nursing home or a community center as opposed to living uh, with family yeah. members I, I think that's something that that's highly cultural and, and also um, what you pointed out in terms of it's also been my experience uh, in West African culture that um, th- there is nothing in the way of uh, a social stigma if you're staying with your folks mm-hmm. until, until you get married or something like that stigma is a little too harsh but but you know you, you get the point that um, as you said, it's perfectly fine. And in some sense, it's, it's uh, the expectation. Whereas mm-hmm. um, my understanding uh, and, and having experienced it being, being married to someone whose family is more traditionally uh, and Western culture, um, mm-hmm. you're out of the house by 18, yeah. uh, whether you like it or not. And so um, there's definitely that dynamic to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess to come back to the topic of family separation in a more violent context, I guess, in drawing the connection, and I, did, I think you do this well in your article as well, in terms of kind of the dehumanization aspect of it in slavery, and then how that carries over into characterizing like migrant woman, for example, in the immigration context. I was wondering if you could just speak a little bit more about um, drawing that, well, helping listeners kind of draw that connection between like dehumanization in the slavery context and in the immigration context. Yeah, and I guess I'll preface my comments uh, by saying one thing that in reflection on the paper that I wish I would have spent more time exploring or rather highlighting is that, you know, we've seen family separation play out in other contexts in the U.S. and slavery, uh, particularly involving, you know, indigenous groups and, and, uh, you Mm -hmm. know, Japanese internment, for example. Um, So I I don't mean to suggest that, you know, the heart of what was going on at the U.S.-Mexico border was, was uniquely a defect of the Trump administration. But essentially, the role that dehumanization comes in is that, you know, it allows the people who are perpetuating this form of violence um, to uh, justify their violence by by saying this is not even a human being that we think is worthy of um, some sort of um, treatment that resembles uh, a, a one that is informed by by dignity or and and something to that effect and and, and the record is unambiguous on this in terms of how the dehumanization project uh, played out uh, and the common line common thread. Uh, in slavery and under the Trump administration was was race, right? You know, Trump's record as a whole um, clearly established that his administration's immigration policies were premised on a conception of non-white immigrants as inferior. Uh, it wasn't immigration as a whole that Trump uh, opposed. Mm-hmm. Um, the listeners will, will, may recall, you know, him, um, I, I use the term shithole countries 
quoting the president saying that he does not want immigrants from shithole countries, his, his shorthand for African and Latin American nations. But he routinely uh, boasted about the prospects of having uh, immigrants from, from you know, Norwegian countries or, or Scandinavian, I should say, uh, more, more broadly. And, and part of the dehumanization uh, was the rhetoric that he uh, began to uh, uh, put out there even before he took office. I, I think uh, many of the listeners will remember him saying that uh, you know, when Mexico sends its people, you know, they're not selling their best. They're not sending their best, yeah. but they're sending, you know, people that have lots of problems. You know, they're bringing problems with us, drugs, crime. And, you know, he went on to say that these aren't people. These are animals. You know, these, this is a, a, a I believe I'm quoting almost verbatim. And so, mm. you know, that is almost the exact same playbook. Um, that Thomas Jefferson uh, used, you know, the, the word animals to describe black people and, 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 and going about executing this scheme um, that entailed subjugating people and then being able to sustain it on the basis of the fact that these aren't, in fact, people. And so mm. when you think about how that dehumanization ties in in terms of um, legal efforts to challenge the system, uh, you might think about a concept like due process, which uh, for the listeners is uh, under the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments, which basically says that at all levels of government, the law must operate by given fair procedures. Well, what does fair procedure look like to someone who uh, at an institutional level has been condemned to a subhuman level? And so this project of dehumanization is so central to seeing how these systems of exploitation and separation play out. Um, again, not only in, in this family separation context under Trump, but in some of the other examples that I, I, I noted. Yeah, I think the, the exact language of the 5th, 14th Amendment is like any persons, right? <laughs> um, so that's an interesting kind of connection. Um, I know that we are nearing the end of our time together. So I was wondering, it's been about a year since you published the article. I was wondering if obviously a lot has changed. I mean, a lot changes like by the day, but a lot has changed since then. I was wondering if you've, you know, would you like do anything differently with your article? Have you come up with new kind of reflections or, I mean, maybe like you wouldn't change it, but um, you have different thoughts. And I was wondering if you... Right. And so, you know, I started working on this piece um, before the summer of 2020, which um, obviously was a, a moment of national and international reckoning of uh, with this issue about race um, and the role that it plays in, in, in shaping our uh, societal arrangements. And you know, I, I alluded to this moments ago that one of the things that I wish I had done uh, differently in, in, in writing the paper is to amplify that um, this is a story that we've seen play out uh, before. Again, you know, for example, in, in the context of Japanese internment and, and uh, uh, the, the history of uh, the treatment of the indigenous population as a general matter. Um, and I think that that focus is particularly important because, as I said uh, at the onset, this is really a project that at its heart has the goal of, of solidarity and allyship. And so to the extent that you know, this I can communicate this issue as being something that is not unique 
to migrants from the Southwest U.S. Um, obviously, you know, I'm saying that it isn't because we saw this in, in, in uh, during the times of enslavement. To the extent I could say, well, this is also the story of indigenous people. This is also the story of people who were in, you know, interned to some degree. I think that uh, would have been uh, more desirable in, in retrospect. Uh, some of what I'm thinking about now in the last, um, I guess, at least a year since the paper has been published, it feels as though the urgency that was surrounding these issues has waned dramatically. Um, and, and that's mm-hmm. not a hyperbolic statement, uh, given, you know, obviously the pandemic and then how it's gripped the world. But I think there, there's a sense that once Trump left office, everything became okay overnight, you know? Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think it's important to still realize that families are still struggling to be reunited. Families that have been reunited are still dealing with uh, the trauma of, of having been, been separated. And so, you know, the question is, uh, what are we doing to make sure that these families that were harmed in this very grievous way that you can never actually remedy, um, but to understand that it is an ongoing development that is still playing out, although not under the you know spotlight that one might say enjoyed, but it, it's still an issue. Um, and so my mind goes to thinking about what are we going to do moving forward to make sure that we are we are continuing to give this the intention the attention that it deserves. I think that one big topic on that front is actually the issue of reparations, right? <laughs> um, I think I haven't fully tra- like followed the news on that, but I feel like I think the most recent news was that the migrant families who were separated from or parents who were separated from their children did not get reparations. I don't know what the progress is on there. That might be a topic of another paper. So, you know, <laughs> um, you know it's funny. Um, I, that's actually uh, a I'm writing a book chapter on that exact uh, issue uh, it called Reparations for Family Separation. Um, and you're right, it hasn't gone anywhere. There were discussions uh, with the Biden DOJ that families that were separated would receive a settlement of, I think, about mm-hmm. 450000 uh, yeah. each family. And um, as soon as, you know, congressional lawmakers got wind of that, you know, it was like, whoa, we're not, we, we can't yeah. go forward with this. Um, and so... Um, thinking about um, analogizing the refusal to pay for these harms, reparations, really, uh, to the refusal to pay reparations to people who are descendants of those who uh, had been enslaved um, and drawing the through line that here again, we're talking about a group that has been uh, racialized um, and there is some concept um, that suggests that these groups do not deserve the beneficence of the money that would allow them to sort of uh, move forward. But it, it, it's, it's an interesting, um, interesting, maybe not the right word, but it's an important thing to think about um, where this is going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hope that I can do an episode on that. Um, but I'm, I'm a law student, so we'll see if I can get to it soon enough. Um, I guess we only have like a minute or so. I was wondering, if just in closing, if you could have, uh, did you have any thoughts in terms of what listeners should quick bull- I mean, you're a professor. What are the quick takeaways that um, listeners should kind of draw from this conversation? Is there anything that they can do to kind of, um, yeah, advocate against this gigantic kind of sprawling issue that doesn't really have a particular shape? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just wondering, 
what are your professor takeaways? Yeah, you know, my my mind goes to um, a lot of the work in, in advocacy is is uh, public education, right? And I use the term to mean um, just uh, being informed on the issues in a way that uh, allows conversation with the the different levels at, at a depth that will um, recognize that um, these are the possible uh, concrete steps I could take. And so, for example. I, I prefaced my comments by saying one challenge that I recognize in this is people looking at this and saying, you know, get out of here, right? This is like, mm-hmm. what What do you mean this is like slavery? But if you can't get people to understand that these are the dimensions that are similar to, to the slave system, then you can't engage people in the issues. And if you can't engage people in the issues, you cannot build the allyship that is going to be required to actually push forward you know, meaningful legislation. Uh, it's not going to happen on the backs of the, the people who themselves are marginalized. It's going to take a, a coalition of a multiracial, uh, multi-ethnic, uh, intersectional coalition of people of goodwill to get any sort of progress on this. And I think at a very fundamental level, you know, the first step is for people to um, become educated on these issues and educate others uh, about these issues. And, and, and from there, um, start to have these dialogues that are, that are plugging in into broader networks um, that can bring about, you know, th- the outcomes that I think. Um, and I do think that the majority of people are on the, quote, right side of the issues. And that's mm-hmm. what keeps me uh, optimistic about the possibility of, of some sort of uh, satisfactory uh, outcome with, with something like this. Yeah, I have nothing to add to that. I think that's a perfect encapsulation of kind of what we want to do with this podcast. So I know you have uh, to go to a meeting. So thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. And I look forward to hopefully reading your chapter on reparations in the future. Thank you so much for, for having me. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to, to be on. And uh, hopefully we will connect at, at some point down the line. Yep. Sounds great. Thank you. Take care. for tuning in to another episode of the divided families podcast if you're interested in listening to more stories of family separation or learning more about our project please follow us on social media at divided families podcast thanks as always to flannel albert for the wonderful music and see you next time